Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Alistair McIntyre is going to finish his essay, How to Seem Virtuous Without Actually Being So, by looking at what he calls the inadequacy of, and he puts this in quotes, a shared public morality. Now, why is he headed there at the conclusion of this very interesting analysis that he's carrying out? Well, he he made the case earlier that we don't really have a shared public morality in any real sense because a shared public morality would actually involve some sort of real account, a systematic and coherent account of the virtues as well as many other things as well. So moral education is going to be inherently both hindered and problematic within the situation that we're in. And instead of having a shared public morality, what we really have, he says, is a shared moral rhetoric. So a rhetoric is a way of using language to attempt to convince other people of your point of view, get them to do things. It's not the same thing as actually educating, building people who could be, in fact, virtuous. And really what this is, is a superficial sort of, let's call it, vocabulary that people use that has a lot of, you know, warm associations with virtues and the opposite painful, prickly associations with what we call vices. And and we don't always have to use the language of virtue. We just talk about the virtues and say, you know, that person is courageous. That person is cowardly. That person has integrity. That person's a sellout. We have all sorts of words that we use. But the trouble is, do we have any real agreement about what those words even mean? And, you know, a lot of people sort of assume Assume that because we have a single word, we're all in agreement about it. And McIntyre says, oh, that's not the case. And if you want a more fully developed case for this, check out his work After Virtue that talks about this in great detail and at much greater length. So in the section, The Inadequacy of a Shared Public Morality, he says that the morality of the virtues presupposed by and advanced in such a rhetoric is not not determinate in the way and to the degree that, and to use two examples, the Aristotelian or the Humean or other rival and controversial standpoints are. And then he says, well, how could it be? It can't be determinate. Now, that's a term that he's using here, determinate and indeterminate. To determine means to be able to specify, to particularize, to go into greater depth and detail about something. In this case, what a virtue is and what it requires. And so he says, how could it be? Well, it represents so far as possible what is generally acceptable, what the adherents of every standpoint and none are able to agree in asserting. So what would be an example of that? He doesn't provide one right there. But we can think of the virtues that he's going to bring up in his cases. Courage. Who's against courage? Everybody thinks courage or bravery or whatever you want to call it is a good thing. 
But what is actually courage? Ooh, now when we go beyond what's generally acceptable, a what he's going to call in just a moment, a shared minimum, uh, it gets very fuzzy. It gets indeterminate. If you ask an Aristotelian, well, what is courage? They can tell you about it and they can give you all sorts of examples, some of which are drawn from Aristotle, some of which represent, you know, further thought on the matter by people who identify themselves as Aristotelians. You can do this with David Hume, even though his ideas are a little less distinct. You can do this with the Stoics who have great analyses of it. You can even do it with the utilitarian tradition as McIntyre is going to point out. So this shared minimum, he says, this shared minimum is just what the political order as such should uphold and require no less but also no more. So as soon as you start getting beyond that, things start getting controversial. I also do want to say something that goes a little bit beyond what McIntyre is saying here, because this is a piece that he is writing uh, several decades ago. And, you know, we do see quite a few people, for example, in American culture who are attempting to impose a shared public morality, largely drawn from right-wing sources, conservative sources. And what we see with them is that they don't have any better idea about the virtues than the rest of us do, because most of the time they laud certain things like courage or integrity, and then they don't show it at all. It's not courage to allow your party to coerce you into voting for things that you know are actually wrong and evil. It's not integrity to make all sorts of claims about sexual practices and then turn out to be either a child molester yourself or somebody who covers that up. So what we see is that even when there can be a robustly articulated, attempted shared public morality, oftentimes it's not. It's counterfeit to use McIntyre's terms. So why does this shared public morality, this minimum, why does it fail us? McIntyre says that it fails us because of its indeterminateness. It doesn't tell us what we need to know. And so he says it fails us just at those points at which the political, social, and cultural order most needs what only the virtues can supply. And when he's saying only the virtues can supply, he means people who have the virtues and actually understand from some robust, systematic, coherent account what a virtue actually is is and what it demands of us. Now, why would that be the case? So he says that the success or failure of any system of the virtues is largely a matter of how successful or otherwise those educated by it and in it are in doing something really important, in extrapolating in their practice as well as in their theory from those situations in which they first learn not only what justice courage, generosity, and the rest require, but actually to act as justice, courage, generosity, and, and the rest require in the right way, at the right time, to the right degree. This is very Aristotelian, of course, to other new and relatively unfamiliar types of situations. So you learn what justice is by your interactions with people in the workplace. Now you actually get a house and you're living in a neighborhood and you're thinking about cases where you have to deal with neighbors who perhaps are being un 
unfair to you. How should you behave? Nobody actually told you that this is what justice looks like in this circumstance. But if you've actually developed the virtue of justice in a real way, not a counterfeit way, then you should be able to transfer it from situation to situation, right? And this is what's lacking to this supposed shared public morality. So he goes on and he says that the weaknesses of the shared morality of commonplace usage, this rhetoric essentially, arise from the conjunction of the fact that indeterminateness in respect of extrapolation leaves its adherence without adequate instruction just at this point, and of the fact that it's just in these new and relatively unfamiliar situations from the standpoint of the maxims that embody commonplace usage concerning the virtues that a crucial need for the virtues is most evident. So there's an interesting paradox here. Without a substantive account of the virtues, you don't have what's needed in order to morally educate people in a substantive account of the virtues. And instead you give them this kind of cotton candy fluff of a moral vocabulary or rhetoric without any adequate guidance. And this is how we get all sorts of people posturing as endorsing virtues. But when the proverbial rubber hits the road, they're at a loss. They don't know what to do or what to advise other people to do. And McIntyre is going to give us three example situations. The first one involves courage versus honesty. The second one, temperateness versus justice. The third one is a little bit more complicated. It involves intellectual virtues versus integrity and honesty. Now, why is it a versus in each of these cases? Well, because that's the stuff where we really get into sticky situations where we want to have adequate guidance or the capacity to rightly figure this stuff out for ourselves. These are the sort of situations in which this transfer from where we're comfortable, what we've learned to new situations comes up. So the first one he says concerns a Marine officer who has learned how to act in accordance with what these two virtues, courage and honesty require in highly specific types of situations. So courage to the point of self-sacrifice in the face of harms and dangers posed to the security of his or her country by some external enemy. Great. They've learned what courage is in that respect. They've also learned to be honest, both in dealings with fellow officers and in reporting to his or her superiors. Okay, so courageous, honest Marine. Now they're in a new situation. What's the new situation? Suppose that at some later time, he or she is ordered by those superiors for the sake of some cause inseparable from the security of his or her country to organize and undertake some clandestine scheme. Clandestine because it must remain unknown to the country's enemies. But now suppose that in order to achieve those ends, they have to de deceive not only those enemies, but the political authorities to whom in the last resort he he or she and his or her superiors are accountable and the public to whom in turn those authorities are accountable. How do you reconcile what courage and honesty require in a new situation like that? What McIntyre says is, I'm not going to actually try to discuss this, but the point that matters for my argument is that a too indeterminate conception of the virtues of courage and honesty leaves such an officer morally resourceless. This is a term that McIntyre uses a lot, resourceless, meaning that you don't have what you need in order to figure these things out well, right? Too indeterminate a conception is just what the morality of commonplace usage will supply. It won't give 
that officer the intellectual and moral resources they need in order to resolve this situation. What about the next one? This is more of an economic matter and it involves temperateness and justice. So he says, imagine in this instance, someone engaged in commercial activity who has learned the maxims of commonplace usage in respect of restraining intemperate desires in everyday life and giving to each what is properly his or hers. So it looks like they've acquired temperateness and justice or temperance, right? And he says, okay, Imagine that this person discovers by taking a quite new kind of risk with, now notice this qualifier, legitimately borrowed money, not stealing it, right? He or she has a reasonable expectation of making sums of money in extraordinary excess of what has hitherto been possible, but the lenders never envisaged this kind of risk and the consequences for the economy are incalculable. And McIntyre says, okay, how do you enact temperateness and justice in a situation like that as the person who is tempted to engage in this new kind of risk-taking with other people's money, money that they didn't sign on to being used in that way? Is that unjust? What does justice call for? What does restraint of one's desires, in this case for making tons and tons of money but taking on a lot of risk, what does that require? Again, McIntyre doesn't provide you with a solution, he just tells you that once again, this person with too indeterminate a conception of temperateness and justice, morally resourceless. They do not have what they need in order to adequately figure out how to reconcile these, these virtues or what the virtues require. Third one, very interesting, a scientific sort of context. A scientific researcher who knows that he or she can only hope to obtain further funding for a very important research project if he or she can produce some positive findings now. But it is in fact a good deal too soon for it to be possible to produce such findings. The researcher thus faces the following dilemma. Either falsify the reports of the data so far or imperil the entire project. They've learned to value the goods that are to be achieved through the exercises of the intellectual virtues and scientific inquiry, and those are the virtues of integrity and honesty. But how do they now decide between these? Which should they favor? What should they do? Again, the indeterminateness of the conception of the virtues as understood in terms of the commonplace usage precludes the possession of such a capacity in those whose moral education was limited to those conceptions. I mean, part of what he's saying here is why basic ethics training doesn't really help out much because, you know, as a researcher, you're told, oh, you must never falsify findings. Well, why not? Well, it's just bad. You know, there's a rule against it. It could lead to, you know, in a utilitarian way, bad effects throughout the system. There's never any real explanation of how this ties in with the intellectual virtues as understood in a classic virtue ethics sense. So he goes on and he says, these three examples, I'm not worried about the question of what ought to be done or left undone, but on something more important, the lack of resources afforded by what we call shared public morality of commonplace usage. It doesn't give people what they actually need. And so he says, if you're going to try to base a sort of common or public moral education just on this, 
it's going to have bad effects. It's not going to give people what they actually need in order to, as we could say, do ethics and understand ethics well. And so he concludes by saying what the morality of the virtues articulated in and defended by the moral rhetoric of our political culture provides is, as it turns out, not an education in the virtues, but rather, and here we get to the title, an education in how to seem virtuous without actually being so. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.